Hello, and welcome to It's Friday with me, Claudia Connell. Jim White, your usual host, is taking a short break, so I'm here to bring you your weekly guide to the best of arts, culture and entertainment. The easiest way to join us every week is to subscribe on Spotify, Apple and Google. And if you haven't already, don't forget to sign up to the Daily Mail Plus briefing at mailplus.co.uk. I don't want to make you feel old, but it's 40 years since the Pretenders scored a UK number one with Brass in Pocket. And this month they're back with a new studio album. Oh, you can't Oscar-winning actress Charlize Theron recently said that there just aren't enough superhero roles for women in the movies. In The Old Guard, her new release this week, she gets a chance to address the balance. Who are you? I lead a group of immortals. An army, I guess. Soldiers. Fighters like you. But... Brighton is my home city, and it's a seaside resort that so-called Covidiots broke lockdown rules to flock to. But as far as the novelist Peter James is concerned, it's a perfect setting for far more sinister crimes than sunbathing. The past three chief constables have all told me that Brighton is a favourite place to live in the UK for First Division criminals. Before that, though, two old celebrity enemies have announced that they've buried the hatchet and not in each other's backs. Robbie Williams and Liam Gallagher, who've been taking pot shots at each other for 20 years, have finally publicly made up. Celebrity beefs are nothing new, and joining me to talk about some of the most memorable feuds in the world of film and music is Brian Viner, the Daily Mail's film critic, and Adrian Thrills, the Mail's music critic. Adrian, he may have patched things up with Robbie Williams, but Liam Gallagher is no stranger to feuds with his rivals, is he? No, I think Liam and his brother Noel, uh, a pair who've made their names as much through their propensity to feud as their, as their often magnificent music. I think uh, it goes back really to the great Britpop wars of 1995, where, where Blur and Oasis both released singles on the same day. Not actually their best singles. It was Roll With It and Country House, far from their, from their best works. But it was one of the lead items on the BBC News at 10. And... And it was kind of quite a long-running feud. I think the uh, the conclusion was Blur won the battle. Well, with it went to number two and Country House to number one. But Oasis, with 22 million sales of what's the story, Morning Glory, won the ultimately won the war. I mean, Liam, he's uh, he's famously feuded as well with with Noel. I mean, they um, they famously split up after a row at a just before a concert in Paris, and uh, Noel walked out. Um, I think. Liam has referred to his brother as a potato and Noel, even, even before they split up, very, very funnily said Liam's like a man with a fork in a world of soup. And Brian, there have been some pretty <laughs> epic feuds in Hollywood as well, haven't there? Yeah, yeah, they have. It's, it's really about ego, isn't it? Uh, it's the same in the music industry and it's certainly the same in Hollywood. All those, those massive egos clashing against each other there's a difference between estrangements and feuds estrangements you know there've been plenty of those where where people don't talk to each other for years like dean martin and jerry lewis which is rather a sad one but they're actual feuds where they are you know they they not just loathe each other but they kind of constantly undermine each other and snipe at each other there that's really great to get your teeth into and the ultimate one of those for my to my mind is between Joan Crawford and Betty Davis those two magnificent old actresses who were only about two years apart in age and and who absolutely hated each other so much so that there was a, a really rather wonderful TV drama two or three years ago called Feud about the two of them with Susan Sarandon uh, and Jessica Lang, we have a we have a clip of it here. Are you out of your mind? 
I wouldn't piss on Crawford if she were on fire. I think she secretly blames me for her Oscar loss. I don't think that's true. She actively lobbied against me, and then she wormed her way into accepting Bancroft's award, which I understand Bancroft hasn't even laid eyes on. Well, I know she expected all sorts of offers after her nomination, but they never really materialized, did they? And have you gotten a load of the interviews that she's been giving lately for that stinker lady with the axe or whatever the hell it's called? So goddamn grand, you want to vomit. And now she's doing television? I mean, really, is that a face America wants in its living room at dinner time? I don't think so. She wouldn't promote our picture, but she has no problem taking her cow town carniac on the road with Bill, Bill... Castle. Yes. What I don't understand is why you would want to work with her again. Well, let's be honest, Betty. Working with either of you wasn't exactly a picnic for me. Betty, who famously said of Joan, she'd slept with every male MGM star apart from Lassie, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, fabulous. And the, the, uh, the male voice we heard in that clip is that of Alfred Molina, who plays Robert Aldrich in the in the TV drama. He was the director of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, where the 1962 film that uh, Davis and Crawford made together, and they were both brilliant in it, but it was Davis, and the reference in that little clip there, it was Davis who was nominated for a Best Actress Oscar, much to Crawford's fury. Uh, and Crawford undermined Betty Davis. She was so furious that Davis had been nominated for this Oscar uh, that she went to Anne Bancroft, who had also been nominated, and said, look, I know Davis is the favourite, but if you happen to get it, can I collect it on your behalf? And that's exactly what happened. Anne Bancroft won the Oscar, and Crawford went up and snubbed Davis, and oh my goodness me, it was, it was real hatred between them. <laughs> and Adrian, some of the leading ladies of pop have been involved in some very public spats as well, haven't they? Yeah, certainly. Uh, Madonna is not averse to the odd feud. And, uh, of course, Sir Elton, famously, I don't think Elton's on Madge's Christmas card list, or unless they've patched things up behind the scenes. I think Elton, famously, at the 2004 Q Awards, uh, picked up an award, but used his speech to, uh, to lay into the Queen of Pop, uh, who I think had won Best Live Act. And Elton... Uh, in rather unprintable language, said, since when has lip-syncing been alive? I think he also said, Madonna's Die Another Day was the worst Bond theme ever. Madonna, on, on her part, I think uh, she's kept her powder pretty dry in terms of Sir Elton, but she's, she's waded into Elton's great friend and godfather of his two daughters, Lady Gaga, uh, particularly over Lady Gaga's um, Born This Way song, which Madonna felt with some good reason that uh, Born This Way is very similar to her own hit, Express Yourself. And uh, I think if we listen to the two of them, you can maybe see what she meant. Madonna might have a point there. Um, we, we all know that uh, Noel and Liam Gallagher don't see eye to eye, but um, Brian, I think there's a far juicier tale of sibling rivalry, isn't there? Uh, 
Yeah, and actually there's an overlap between the uh, what I was talking about earlier, the, the Betty Davis-Joan Crawford feud, because after the success of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, they made a film called Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte, and they wanted to get the two of them back together again. It was only a couple of years later, but Crawford couldn't bear the idea of being upstaged by Davis again, so she pulled out, and the part went to... Olivia de Havilland. Now, Olivia de Havilland uh, was the sister, still, I mean, she's still alive, amazingly, aged 104. Her younger sister, only younger by about 15 months, was Joan Fontaine, another huge Hollywood star. And those two, from childhood, hated each other. Joan felt that their mother favoured Olivia. And then Joan in, got, the, got the role, the plum role, as far as Olivia was concerned, of the second Mrs. De Winter in Hitchcock's film, Rebecca, of which we just have a clip of, of, of Joan Fontaine and Laurence Olivier getting together in, uh, for the first time. Let's hear it. Please don't bother. It doesn't really matter. Oh, leave that. Leave that. Go and lay another place at my table. Amazon will have lunch with me. Oh, but I, I couldn't possibly. Why not? Oh, well, please don't be polite. I, it's very kind of you, but I'll be all right if they just change the cloth. I wasn't being polite. I should have asked you to have lunch with me even if we hadn't upset the bar so clumsily. Come along. We needn't talk to each other if we don't feel like it. Well, thank you very much. So, Brian, that was, yeah, that was, sounds like a, a sort of a, a lifelong professional rivalry. Yeah, and then they were both nominated for Oscars in 19, a couple of years after that, uh, which Joan won for another Hitchcock movie, Suspicion. The feuding and the estrangement went on for years, and eventually Fontaine said, you know, I got married first, I got an Academy Award first, I had a child first, and if I die first, she'll be furious, because again, I'll have got there first. <laughs> and sure enough, she did. In 2013, she, she died. She was a, a, the marvellous old age of 96. But, uh, and Olivia, to her credit, you know, publicly expressed her sorrow and regret. So, uh, but nevertheless, it was a lifelong feud. Well, there you go. Nolan and Liam, when it comes to feud, you're amateurs. Right, thank you, Adrian. Thanks, Brian. In 2015, Peter James was voted the best crime writer of all time in an online poll. All 15 of his novels about the Brighton detective Roy Grace have topped the UK bestseller list. This month, the latest instalment is published, and here Peter chats to Jim White about his new book, Find Them Dead, and he reveals why Sussex by the Sea has been so inspiring to him as a crime writer. Peter, uh, Roy Grace, Find Them Dead, new book coming out, uh, 16th um, book with him as the hero. Um, how'd you get on with him? He, he must be in your head a lot. Do you like him? Roy Grace is actually based on, on a real character called Dave Gaylor, who was himself Detective Chief Superintendent at, at Major Crime in Sussex. Uh, and I met him way back in about 1997, before Roy Grace ever happened. And we, got, we became friends. I, I met him when I was out with Sussex Police one day, and they thought I'd be interested to meet this character because he's quite different to a lot of detectives, and he's got a very creative side. And, and we met, and I was writing a thriller called Denial at the time, and he said, oh, tell me about it. And I told him, he said, hang on a sec. Why is your character doing that? Why hasn't your detective got an outside inquiry team doing this? And I realized this guy had a really creative side to him. And we became friends, and he helped me on my next couple of thrillers. And he got promoted in 2002 to head of major crime. At the same time, my publishers, Pam McMillan, asked if I'd ever thought of creating a detective as a central character. So I went to Dave and I said, would you like to be a fictional cop? And so we've worked together on the Roy. It doesn't look like Roy, but Roy is so modeled on him. He, we worked together on, we planned the books 
together. He reads every 150 pages, tells me how Roy and the other detectives really think and act. So he's helped hugely. And he's become my best, one of my best friends. When, I'm, when I got married um, in 2015, he was best man. And so I have this real life Roy Grace and I have my fictional one. And my fictional one too, I, I feel is, is a really close mate. Uh, you know, Roy reflects a lot of my opinions and not just Roy, actually, the whole team. I love, uh, you know, every time I start a new book, as, I, as I've just done recently, I'm writing the 17th now, and I, it's almost like I'm sitting down with my mates. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, as procedurals go, it's incredibly detailed, and, and you've just given away why that is, because you're right in there with the heart of, uh, of the police force. Did you ever have a yearning yourself to be a cop? It seems from your books as though you love it. Do you know, I, I, I do, I mean, I love the thrill of going out with them. Um, probably even more so in the Met, where, where this book is partly set, because in the Met, they are even more proactive and you know, there's a lot more action. But I mean, if you ask any copper what, at heart, what they love best about the job, um, they say, you know, driving on blues and twos and getting into a bundle. <laughs> <laughs> See, money can't buy things. I mean, that's the frivolous answer, you know, at heart, you know, what good police officers and, and the vast majority of, you know, I've spent over 30 years seeing police, spending time with them almost pretty much on a weekly basis in Sussex, in London and around the world. And the vast majority of cops are good people. They go into this job because they can actually make a difference to people's lives. Find Them Dead is, as you say, partially set uh, in the map, but it's also back in your hometown of Brighton. What is it about Brighton? I mean, I, I don't want to get too Graham Green on you, but there always seems to be something lurking under the surface of Brighton. Is it really like that? Or are you making it all up? I mean, Brighton was called the, the murder capital of Europe in 1932. And the kind of super is always stuck. I mean, the past three chief constables have all told me that Brighton is a favoured place to live in the UK for first division criminals. Costa del Crime! If you were going to design your perfect criminal environment, you'd design Brighton. Major seaport on both sides, great for bringing in drugs, exporting and bringing in pe smuggling people, exporting stolen goods. Huge university town, two unis, big party town, uh, you know, big stag night, hen night, huge young culture, media culture, largest gay community in, in the UK. It's a massive recreational drugs market. It's also, I mean, back in 1996, the Independent said, if you're ever burgled, go straight to Brighton's lanes and look in the windows of the antique shops. <laughs> you know, it used to have the biggest number of antique shops in the UK at one point. So you've got all those things. It's got all the escape routes, channel tunnel, fast, fast motorways, you know, a small airport with no customs and immigration. It's got everything a villain could possibly want. And, and at the same time, it's a beautiful place to live. So, and, and it's never really been luckily overwritten. I mean, Graham Greene's Brighton Rock was the book that inspired me. And I read that for the first time when I was 14, growing up in Brighton. And I put that book down and I, and I just said, one day I'm going to try and write a crime novel that's 10% as good as this book. And not only have you done that, you've written 15 times you've been top of the best sellers list. Does that add a kind of extra pressure to you? Are you now worried that Find Them Dead's only going to be second in the best sellers list? <laughs> I always kind of worry. But you know, obviously you get a runaway book comes along like a Fifty Shades of Grey and that, that's going to kind of 
stop you getting to number one. But far more than that, when I was a kid, I was an avid reader, and I found a lot of my heroes, like Alistair MacLean was one, seemed to me when they got successful, they would get lazy. Uh, yeah, the, the plots will get less good, the books will get fatter, maybe people got scared to edit them. And I, and I always vowed that if I was ever lucky enough to be able to make a living as, a, as an author writing thrillers, I would always try to raise the bar with, with each book. And that's the biggest challenge for me is, is making, trying to make each book fresh and to try to make each book better. I try so hard to do that. Well, nobody could accuse you of being lazy or incredibly productive. This is the second book that you produced this year. Babes in the Wood uh, came out earlier in the year, which was a, a true story. Is, is writing nonfiction a very different process from fiction? It is, because you've got non-fiction. Basil was the second I wrote, first one with, with, with Graham Bartlett also, who was the commander of Brighton and Hove, about policing Roy Grace's Brighton. And you've got to be so accurate and mindful not to offend or hurt any, anybody, because Babes in the Woods, you know, tremendously horrible story about two little girls who were sexually assaulted and murdered. Um, back in the mid-1980s. And you know, obviously there's a, a lot of people still suffering grief um, from that. Uh, and so we had to be very mindful of that. At the same time, trying to tell what is a, an extraordinary story. But I, I guess I love fiction best. I mean, and I've got another book coming out this year, I'm not sure if you know, called I Follow You, which is a standalone thriller, all actually set on the island of Jersey, which comes out at the beginning of October. Um, it's another three, three in a year. That's, that's just ridiculous. Because you, you've also been a film producer. You, got, you, you, did, um, uh, you were the producer of uh, Al Pacino's Merchant of Venice, weren't you, uh, back in back 2005? How on earth do you find time for all that? Well, I, that was the last film I really got involved with. Um, writing is my real love. Although now Roy Grace is coming to television, ITV, uh, um, hopefully starting production when, it, when production resumes again in September with, with John Sim. And I'm a little bit involved with that. But I just love, best of all, writing. I love particularly Roy Grace. But I, I'm happiest when actually I'm... I'm I know a lot of writers hate writing. It's a funny thing. Um, but I actually, I love it. I, I, I have a slightly back-to-front writing day, and my actual creative writing day starts at 6 o'clock in the evening on the dot uh, with a stiff drink, vodka martini or, or gel and tonic, and I put on music, uh, and I just get in the zone for about two and a half, three hours, uh, then I review the, the next morning what I wrote the night before. Hope I didn't get too smashed. I think it was Hemingway said, write drunk, edit sober. So I, I tried to... <laughs> You've been following the Hemingway line since. <laughs> yeah, you, mentioned, you mentioned John Sim there, uh, who's going to be Roy. Um, you, you're so familiar with Roy. Um, were you involved in the casting? Is John Sim the kind of guy you thought of in your head being Roy Grace? Well, I, w I was very involved in, in, in the casting, and it's great. ITV, the, the producer, Andrew O'Connor, is, is an old mate of mine. We, we did produce a couple of not great TV series a few years back. We made Peach um, Bed Sitcom, which is the precursor to Peep Show. Uh, he made Peep Show after that. And we, we've, we've worked quite clear. ITV had been wonderful to work with. John Sim, our unbelievably was my first choice because 
When I created Broy... You're not just saying that. That's, that's genuinely, he was your first choice. Yeah, and I'll tell you why. When I, when I first created Broy, always when I'm writing a character, I, I model them on somebody physically. Um, I find it. And I, I had modeled Roy actually on early Daniel Craig uh, you know, before, before he was Bond. And that was the kind of look. And, and John Sim has that kind of look too. You know, he's, um, and John's got that empathy. Um, and, I, I, and, and it's been an extraordinarily popular choice. I, and I really thought that whoever we had, that we cast Roy Grace, at least 50% of, of, of my fans will be up in arms saying, ah, we can't have, that's not how he looks. We've had none of that. We've had 99.99% say, this is a fantastic choice. And the tiny number who said, no, it's not, a, not who I thought Roy would look like, but I think he'd be good. I've had nobody say, this is rubbish, I'm not going to watch it. The great thing about John is he's... We've been Skyping a bit during the lockdown, and he's a really nice, smart guy. And because you don't even know that I'm such a stickler for getting things right, his father-in-law was a Met copper for 35 years. He shouts at the screen whenever anything gets, <laughs> whenever anyone gets anything wrong in the pop joke. So John fully gets just how precious I am about getting things right. Um, so that that's that was due to shoot this summer, was it? And so it's all been put back. I should have started shooting um, about second week in May. And at the moment, um, we're kind of rescheduled for September 7th, subject to being physically able to, you know, with the, with the easing of the lockdown. ITV are very keen to get going. So I, I'm, hopefully it'll, it'll, it'll start then. As a final thought, one of the consequences of lockdown has been a diminution in crime you can have anything to write about when we're all released <laughs> yeah it's kind of hard to pick somebody's pocket from six, six <laughs> oh my god i think there's been a decrease in physical crime but the increase in cyber crime has just been enormous i mean for me the you know a lockdown has been horrible for so, for so many reasons but one silver lining i take from it is for the first time in my writing career uh our first book was 1981 first time ever i'm ahead of schedule on my new book <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for joining us and um, make make this evenings a double uh, for us uh, peter Jim, I, I would hate to disobey your orders <laughs> for the hits and the misses where the daily mail's writers assess the week's new releases and they tell us what's worth a watch and a listen to this weekend first up we're talking movies with the daily mail's film critic brian viner um so movies brian what do you have for us this week well there's a um there's a new netflix film claudia called the old guard uh, which is a, a sort of fantasy thriller. It stars Charlize Theron in one of those kind of alpha female roles that she plays so well in, for instance, Atomic Blonde and Mad Max Fury Road, of course. It's an incredibly silly premise about four so-called immortals. Well, not so-called, they are immortals. They're these kind of band of incredible soldiers who have gone through the centuries and 
going into battle and dying, but then uh, their, their wounds miraculously heal and they come back sort of 200 years later and carry on fighting. And so Charlize is the leader of this quartet. And in this movie, and we're just about to hear a clip because uh, there are only four of them. And the most recent recruit was back in the Napoleonic Wars. We're, here we are in the 21st century and there's a, um, a US Marine, a young woman played by Kiki Lane, she joins them. She doesn't know what's going on, but she realizes that she's become immortal too. And here they are talking to each other and explaining exactly what this immortal business is all about. How are you all in my dreams? We dream of each other. They stop when we meet. It used to take years to track a new one. Booker was the last. 1812. No way. Yeah, I died fighting with Napoleon. So... You're even older than him. Nicky and I met in the Crusades. The Crusades? The love of my life was of the people I've been taught to hate. <laughs> we, we killed each other. Many times, yeah. <laughs> You're the oldest. Yeah. Well, how old are you? Old. How old? Too old. So we really never die. Brian, I mean, as, as you said, yeah. Charlize Theron's really embraced <laughs> the sort of the action role, hasn't she? I mean, is, is this worthy of her talents? Yeah, well, I mean, in a way it is, you know, some good action scenes, some good fighting scenes and so on. But the, the whole premise is so silly and none of them take it, they all take it so seriously. The, the only character who, who sort of hams it up a bit, which is a, the kind of gives the performance that the film kind of really needs is Harry Melling, who plays the baddie. And he's, a, he's this uh, rich billionaire entrepreneur who wants to harvest their DNA inevitably. There's always somebody in these films trying to harvest everybody else's <laughs> DNA. Is, you know? yeah. so, and uh, so his right-hand man is Chiwetel Ejiofor, and, he, and he, he's trying to sort of capture them so that they can... Uh, and Chiwetel wants to, his character wants to do it for the goodness of, you know, for the good of mankind. Harry Melling is only interested in one thing, and that's to make money. So, uh, but the, yes, the Charlize character, she plays this character called Andromache of Scythia. Uh, and we see these silly flashbacks to her kind of chasing around on a horseback in a headdress. But these days in the 21st century, she's just known as Andy, plain Andy. And she, um, she's a bit world weary, as you can imagine, after 2000 years of sort of saving the world and killing soldiers and things like that. But it's very silly, but it's quite, it's, it's not a bad watch. Am I going to call it a hit or a miss? Yeah. Because it's so silly and because it takes itself so seriously, uh, I'm going to call it a miss. And what else do you have for us? There's a new Tom Hanks film called Greyhound. Now, this was, this was destined for the cinema screens, uh, but of course, because of, the, because of the virus, they decided that the distributors would be Apple TV. So it's on, it's on Apple. It's a, Tom Hanks actually wrote this film. He stars in it, but he wrote it. It's an adaptation of a C.S. Forrester novel, um, and it's about a, a U.S. destroyer. So it's set during the Battle of the Atlantic in 1942, uh, it's about a U.S. destroyer codenamed Greyhound, and it has to protect a convoy of some 37 ships going across the Atlantic, heading for Liverpool, carrying supplies. Uh, so he's, his, is one, it's his first command, 
and he is the captain in charge of Greyhound, and they're constantly, as soon as they get out of the range of, of Allied aircraft protection, they are constantly menaced by U-boats. And that's really the story of the film. It's, the, it's, it's Tom Hanks doing his, you know, his wonderful kind of noble, righteous role as a captain. He's done so many times, but he's so good at it that it doesn't matter. Yeah, let's listen to a clip. Targets disappeared, sir. Here they come. What are we going to do? We'll bring hell down from on high. that he was he was disappointed it wasn't getting a cinema release and I'm, I'm wondering if somebody from Apple whispered in his ear because he then sort of retracted that but so, I mean some movies yeah. particularly war movies do need that big screen don't they they do and I think this one does really because it doesn't I mean it works on the small screen but it would work much better on on a big one because there's so much CGI and it's you know there's some spectacular action it's a little bit on, on perhaps um, on the small screen, it just seems a bit samey. You know, you've got the, the, um, this, this ship being attacked constantly by U-boats. Um, but uh, apart from anything else, it's a very worthy story to tell because the Battle of the Atlantic was a huge campaign during the Second World War. And it hasn't, it's been a bit underrepresented in the, in the movies. Though three and a half thousand ships were lost, 72,000 lives. So it's a, it's a story really worth telling. Uh, and it, it's told well, but you're quite right. It would be better on the big screen. Nevertheless, it's one of this week's hits. And now I'm joined by the male's music critic, Adrian Thrills. So, Adrian, what have you been listening to this week? Uh, yeah, a couple of really good albums this week, actually. The, uh, the first one, one of rock and roll's great characters, Chrissy Hind, who's back with the Pretenders for the first time in a couple of years. Her last album last year was a jazz record, a solo record, in which she tackled some of the standards sung by Sinatra and Charlie Mingus. But uh, this is, it's back to basics. It's um, a classic Pretenders rock and roll record that harks back to the sound of songs like Kid and Stop Your Sobbing. And it comes with an endorsement from no less an authority than, than John McEnroe, obviously a close friend of Chrissy's, who says it's rock and roll at its finest. And uh, I think he's a pretty good judge, actually. It's uh, a very short, sharp, punchy record, 10 tracks, 30 minutes. Um, it's actually out in full next week, but as become the way during lockdown is uh, albums that were postponed have been kind of released in installments. So um, even though it's not out in full until next Friday, half the tracks are actually out there to stream already, and it, it gives you the one. You know, it gives you a very good flavour of what the record's about. There's some, uh, as I say, really nice pop songs. Um, there's a reggae number that harks back to her duet with UB40's Ali Campbell. There's some nice kind of Bo Diddley blues grooves and and a couple of classic Chrissy Hine ballads. There's there's one called Crying in Public, which rather contradicts Chrissy's statement that this isn't a breakup record there's there's quite a few kind of heartbreak songs on there and there's another one which i think we're going to hear which is called you can't hurt a fool laughing and joking a real superstar oh you can't hurt a fool well don't even try Why reconsider? Why? 
had a, an incredible 40-year career and now a, a grandmother, so no sign of mellowing, Adrian. No, I mean, and that voice, it's just, it's aged so well. It's just still got that lovely, sultry tone to it. And uh, she's singing really well on this record. And uh, But it's her songwriting, I think, that also really does stand the test of time. And uh, I think there's a line in that song where she kind of says she's too old to know better. And I think it's uh, a kind of a, an endorsement, really, of what she what she does you know what she does she just does so well and uh, it's good to have her back and uh, i think i know which way you're going a hit yeah, or a I, miss? I think we're going to go with a hit on this one and, and what else do you have for us uh, well the other big record out this week is the latest by rufus wainwright who is the son of course of the uh, the kind of folk singer songwriters loudon wainwright the third and and the late kate mcgarrigal and he's had a very kind of topsy-turvy career he, he started out as a pop singer songwriter the last 12 years he's really focused on the on writing operas he's written two operas it's all very very high-minded i mean he's a huge talent a real polymath uh, i think his last album which came out two or three years ago was uh, it's one in which he set nine shakespearean sonnets to music so you kind of approach a rufus record with a little in a little kind of trepidation actually because you kind of think oh god it's gonna it's gonna be quite heavy going but uh, this one is it has been heralded as his return to pop for the first time in eight years i think so of course it's pop as rufus wainwright sees it rather than pop that the way that kind of girls allowed or boys own would see it it's uh, it's a very opulent lushly orchestrated record but he, he is a real talent and at times it becomes a bit bombastic, but ultimately his, his melodic talent and his way with words um, do, does shine through. And um, we're going to hear a song, actually, one of the kind of slightly more toned down songs on the record, which is all about the, uh, the need for any aspiring star to kind of make it big in, in rural middle America before they can say they've really made it. You ain't big unless you're big in Alabama Don't know who you are unless you made it in Wichita Gotta get back to Kansas Or at least Southern North Carolina You ain't big unless you're big in Mississippi Don't know who you are unless you made it in Topeka Gotta get back to Kansas He's a fascinating performer. He's absolutely not afraid to try anything new, is he? Is, does this latest project pay off? I think it does on balance. There's one. It becomes a bit heavy going. It's a, an hour or so in length, and there's one or two tracks where you think he just uh, tone it all down a little bit. But uh, yeah, it, it, he is a real talent, and and that's a lovely song. He, it, it's a weird song actually because he kind of salutes all these towns and states of the American heartlands, but he makes the exception uh, for the town of Lawrence, Kansas, which he says uh, he says it doesn't really matter at all whether or not you're big in Lawrence, Kansas. So uh, I think maybe. I wonder what happened in Lawrence, Kansas. Well. Oh, you do. I mean, I can I can sense another feud brewing between uh, <laughs> yeah. the, the the good folk of Lawrence and, and Mr. Wainwright. But uh, but and, uh, and where was, are you going on this one? Is this a well, hit? Well, on balance, I'm going to go with a hit because I think he's he. You know, too many pop stars stars don't really try anything new. And Rufus, he's always searching, always looking for for a new angle. And you know, there's a few of them here. And uh, uh, I'm coming down on the side of a hit. Yeah. 
Well, unlike the Chancellor, we can't offer you lunch on us, but hopefully we've helped you decide what's worth the price of a download. My thanks to Brian and Adrian. And finally, let's take a trip across the Atlantic by our own It's Friday Airbridge to see what's happening in the USA. Joining me for the lowdown is the Mail's New York-based writer, Jackie Stephen. So, Jackie, that shy and retiring fellow Kanye West has made a big announcement, hasn't he? Oh, it's so depressing. On uh, July the 4th, he decided to announce that he was going to run for president. Now, he's going to run as an independent. He's been incredibly enthusiastic about Donald Trump, and he's been wearing his MAGA hat everywhere and saying that, yes, Trump's the best thing since sliced bread and that God has chosen Trump. He couldn't have been more enthusiastic. But now he's decided he doesn't like Trump and that he and Kim want to head for the White House. So Kim has been all over the news talking about being first lady and how she'll cope with it. And Kanye did the most extraordinary four-hour interview with Forbes magazine. Quite bizarre. He's calling his party the birthday party because he said if he wins, it'll be happy birthday for everyone. He said that vaccines are bad. He's suspicious of the coronavirus vaccine. He claims he's had the virus. He says that the vaccine is just an attempt for people to put chips in us all to stop us crossing the gates of heaven. Uh, That's his uh, anti-vaccine bit. He said he hasn't got a foreign policy yet because he hasn't done enough research on it. He hasn't got a tax policy. Again, he doesn't know enough about it. Now, the big fear about this is that he's in the middle of a bipolar episode. This is what his family have said. He's had mental health issues in the past, and they're very serious. He had a breakdown in 2016 for which he was hospitalized, and apparently he has a bipolar episode once every year, and it severely affects his decision-making. Now, this is actually very serious because there are enough people now, I think, who would vote for him. But if he's mentally ill, this is a big worry, and his family yesterday expressed you know, a lot of concern that it's an episode, uh, but what can they do? And is anyone taking it seriously? I mean, are are people sort of viewing it as a a stunt? The worrying thing is he's being taken very seriously. The billionaire Elon Musk, I think that's how you pronounce his ridiculous name, uh, he has got a ton load of money that he can throw behind it. He said that he's supporting him and he'll take a lot of the black vote, to be honest. And that's actually adversely affects Joe Biden. He's effectively handing the presidency to Trump because I don't think that Kanye will win it. By taking the black vote, he's giving votes to Trump because Biden has always had a problem with attracting the black vote. So if Kanye takes the black vote from Biden, he's effectively handing the presidency to Trump. And that's a real worry because now you've got a choice of two people with mental health problems to choose from. That's um, true. Kanye. Yes. <laughs> this is a real, real worry now. And um, moving on, Disney Plus, I mean, they scored a huge success with their streaming of, of Hamilton, a hip hop musical. I think they experienced something like a, a 74% increase in downloads, but, but there's been something of a backlash. Is that right? Yes, there has, because there's now a hashtag cancel Hamilton campaign because they say that it glorifies slavery. Now, Lin-Manuel Miranda, all these people have such complicated names. Why can't they just be called (laughs) Kevin or Sharon or something? Uh, Lin, yeah. Lin has said that he agrees. Yes, it does glorify slavery. But, you know, he's taken a ton load of money from Disney and all the cast have as well. You know, they all had shares in the, the production, so they've all done incredibly well. I really tried to watch it. I've tried to listen to the soundtrack before. I can't 
stand it. I really can't bear the music. I tried to watch it. The sound on it, apart from the music sound, the technical sound is really, really bad. And they recorded it three times for the Disney production. Well, if that's the best that they came away with, goodness knows. Now, I'm a big fan of musicals, but I just think it's terrible. I couldn't stand it for more than 15 minutes. Let's just say it's no Mamma Mia. I'm surprised Mamma Mia hasn't been cancelled yet. Some of those ABBA lyrics must be a bit dodgy. Um, yeah, but they're a nice group and they, oh, they're cute. We like ABBA. I mean, the art scene in the UK is really sort of gripped by this cancel culture at the moment. Is, is it the same in the US? It very much is. It's, it's very similar to the UK. But, you know, there's now a campaign to cancel the cancel culture because a lot of people are now complaining that everything's being cancelled. So it's hashtag cancel culture, cancel culture, because people are getting fed up with it. What else are we going to cancel? You know, there's going to be nothing left on the air, nothing to go and see in the cinema. It's getting really depressing. I'm thinking about emigrating to Malta. <laughs> well, they're never going to cancel us, Jackie. Thanks for joining me. <laughs> nice to talk to you. And that's it from It's Friday. Thanks for joining us. And don't forget, you can do that every week via Spotify, Apple and Google. You can also sign up for your daily mail briefing from mailplus.co.uk. And if you'd like to drop us a line, we'd love to hear from you at it'sfriday at mailplus.co.uk. Have a great weekend and we'll catch you next week. It's Friday.